So this morning, as we come to the text and this time of worshiping God through the exhortation of his word, um, I pray, my hope is that the expression of God's work revealed by our text this morning gives us even more reasons to praise God. And so I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 1. And I want to bring to you a message that I have titled, The Prayer to Please God, God's Work in Us. Um, I will ask those of you who are able to please stand for the reading of God's Word. Colossians chapter 1. We're going to once again begin reading in verse 9. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You may be seated. On New Year's Eve, 1936, just hours, quite literally before his impending death, J. Gresham Mackin dictated his final words in the form of a telegram to his colleague, John Murray. Those words read, I am so thankful for the active obedience of Christ. That statement reflected Mackin's own need for the perfect obedience and the sacrifice of Christ for the salvation of God. Upon his death, Mackin left behind a testimony of both faithful work for God and faithfulness to God. He was known for his defense of orthodoxy against the theological liberalism of his day. His writings reflected an unwavering commitment to his Lord Jesus Christ. Those same writings today find themselves on many lists as a must-have for any Christian's library. His commitment to truth is further reflected by his own testimony. When he gave up his position as New New Testament professor at Princeton Seminary, now Princeton University, and instead, in a response to the modernist theology that was influencing that seminary, he left and started his own. It now is called Westminster Theological Seminary. God used Mackin to influence lives around the world through his teaching, and through his preaching. With such a testimony of this spiritual giant, Warren Peel writes, If J. Gresham Mackin, at the end of a life of godliness, brilliance, and faithfulness, couldn't rest on his own righteousness to secure his place in heaven, how much less can you or I? We need a Savior who has lived the life we cannot live. For the entirety of his life, more than 30 years, Jesus Christ never said anything wrong, and he never did anything wrong. 
He not only did everything right, but all that he said or did was always in the right way and at the right time. Pressure is further added to Christ's disciples when we recognize that while Christ's outward life was a model of pristine obedience, his inner life was even more so. The entirety of his thoughts, his emotions, and his attitudes were in complete compliance with God the Father's expectations. How disheartening this would be for believers if it were not for Christ. If this is a standard for the Christian life, which one of us could ever please God? Yet last week, that was the very prayer that Paul uttered on behalf of the Colossians. His prayer is that they would walk worthy of the Lord, it says in verse 9. Fully pleasing to him. If it were not possible, then there would be no reason for Paul to pray this way. But as we talked about last week, Paul prays expectantly. Not only praying for them to please God, but he now follows that up with an explanation of what pleasing God looks like. It's a full description that seems pretty hopeless. And it would be if the Christian was a life lived, the Christian life was one lived by a Christian's own strength. But Paul's words are not as hopeless nor as helpless as they might appear. Following his prayer for pleasing God, he gives us four ways in which a Christian can indeed please God. Therefore, I want you to note first the fruit of verse 10b. The second part of verse 10 reads, Bearing fruit in every good work. I would tell you God is pleased when we bear fruit for him. Just a few verses earlier, Paul has written verse 6, and he says, In the whole world, it, meaning the gospel, is bearing fruit and increasing. Just as the mark of the genuine gospel is bearing fruit, the mark of the genuine disciple is also bearing fruit. If the gospel of verse 6 is fruitful, then the gospel-filled person of verse 10 will also be fruitful. Fruit is a frequent analogy in scripture. It offers a comparison frequently between what is bad fruit and what is good fruit. Matthew 7, 17 through 19 offers a deeper description, saying every healthy tree bears good fruit. But the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. This comes in the context of how false prophets and false teachers are identified by their fruit. We could say also that by their fruit, false disciples are revealed. On the opposite side of the spectrum, fruit also reveals both the authenticity of the message and the messenger. By the fruit it produces, we are able to determine the legitimacy of the message being presented, whether it is from God or from men. In the same way, by fruit we observe whether a confessing disciple is following God, following men, or following himself. Fruit is the mark of the Christian life. Paul writes to the Romans. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. 
But what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of these things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. While the fruit of not following Christ results in the very things that bring shame, as noted here, the fruit of following Christ leads to sanctification or holiness. This becomes an important aspect of our text. Just as holiness is not the result of our own work, fruit is not merely the product of our own labors either. James 5, 7, discussing the product of patience. And James gives this example of the farmer writing, See how the farmer waits for the previous fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. While the farmer toils and works laboriously, the final production is beyond his control. It is instead complete de- completely dependent upon God. And so it is with our lives as well. The fruit of a person's life necessitates a reasonable amount of labor on every individual's part, but the outcome is completely dependent upon the source of our life. The fruit we produce in is not born out of our own good works. The fruit yield is the good work, born out of God's work in our lives. It is a consequence of God working in us as we rely upon him. Therefore, we recognize three characteristics of godly fruit. First, it is prepared by God. Notice how our text connects bearing fruit to good works. But we learn elsewhere in scripture that those good works are not merely deeds we decide to do on our own merit. We do not merely determine, I'm going to bear good fruit today. Therefore, I'm going to volunteer, or I'm going to be kind to someone, or I'm going to help someone. The fruit of good works has already been established by God. Consider the words in Ephesians 2.10. Verses 8 and 9 are often cited in the midst of evangelism, saying that we cannot rely on our good works. It is not our good deeds that save us or bring us to the point of salvation. But neither should we forget verse 10. that says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them it is made certain that we are not saved by good works but we are certainly saved for good works for some this may create additional stress as they wrestle with determining what good works god has prepared for them quite frankly if it's in your life then it's a work that god has prepared for you whether or not it becomes fruit-bearing work though is dependent upon your response to it. The prayer begins in verse 9 of Colossians. And it, it says that they are fit, or his prayer is that they are filled or controlled by the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So how is fruit born during the works prepared for an individual? By responding to God's will with wisdom and understanding. And the only way that happens is by being immersed in the revealed will of God's word. By being immersed in the spiritual wisdom and understanding that God has provided for us. 
If you are not in God's truth, you cannot live God's truth. Second, good works are produced by Christ. They are not formed by us, but are the result of Christ's work. One of the key differences between verse 6 of Colossians 1 and verse 9 is who causes the outflow of works. Verse 6 says, The gospel which has come to you is indeed in the whole world. It is bearing fruit and increasing. That is in the active voice, meaning that the cause of the gospel's fruit is the gospel itself. But verse 9 switches to what is known as the middle voice to indicate that the cause of a believer's fruit is not the believer. The cause is from another source. This source is revealed in John chapter 15. And if you want a task this week, I would tell you to read John chapter 15, verses 1 through 17. But for the sake of time, I want to read just the first six verses. John chapter 15, beginning in verse 1, he says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. Three times in that short text, he says, abide in me. And definitely the whole passage talks about abiding in him. The source of fruit comes from Christ. Therefore, if we're not abiding in him, we cannot expect to bear any fruit for him. It only takes but a quick glance at the fruit of our lives to discern whether we are in Christ or in the world. Finally, I want you to note that fruit is propagated by the Spirit. The fruit is born out of our life is the result of the Spirit's influence in our life. We are told of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 6.22. In a similar way, Romans 5.5 not only indicates that believers have been given the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, but that God's love has been poured into their lives from that Spirit. So how is fruit born in our lives? How do we live out the good works that God has prepared beforehand? By living in the Spirit. And responding to the fruit of this, with the fruit of the Spirit. We don't like to talk about bearing fruit because we fear sounding legalistic or even works based in our soteriology, meaning our doctrine of salvation. It is true that if we do not exercise caution, indeed, we will proclaim a gospel that is derived from men's works. And to deny that is to deny the effect of the gospel. Yet the call on those who love God from our text is to bear fruit. And we cannot ignore that context and that concept for the sake of sounding legalistic or out of fear being works-based. Paul's prayer is that the Colossians will please God. 
And it begins here with the provision of bearing fruit. It's the same theology presented in John's writings. We see it in James's writings. And it's even taught by Christ during his earthly ministry. We just read his very own words from John chapter 15. God is pleased when believers bear fruit for him. Notice something though. The fruit is initiated by God, induced by Jesus Christ, and influenced by the Spirit. God the Father prepares the fruit. Jesus Christ produces the fruit. And the Holy Spirit propagates the fruit. That's the difference between a faith by works and a faith that works. One seeks to know God on his own efforts, while the latter seeks to know God by God's efforts. Aside from bringing glory to himself, God is pleased when we bear fruit because it means we are abiding in him, or rather abiding in his son Jesus Christ. That means, therefore, we have a relationship with him. God experiences great pleasure when his people are trusting him, relying upon him, and committed to him. And the fruit is the evidence of our relationship with him. His pleasure is not only in that fruit, his pleasure is in the relationship that comes so that we may bear fruit. I want you to note, second, the increasing knowledge in the final part of verse 10. It says, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. God is pleased when we grow in our knowledge of him. Once again, in the same manner that the gospel is always bearing fruit, then the gospel-filled person always bears fruit. So also, the gospel is always increasing. And therefore, the gospel-filled person is always increasing as well. Specifically, increasing in the knowledge of God. Remember Colossians 1, six says, In the whole world it, the gospel, is bearing fruit and increasing. The gospel is always at work, never ceasing to influence lives around the world. Because the Spirit never ceases his work through the gospel. For unbelievers, somewhere, the gospel is working at hearts. <laughs> Convicting people to turn from themselves and turn towards God. But in this moment in our reading in Colossians, Paul's writing to believers. How is it that the gospel continues to influence believers who have already been saved? Because the gospel is not only sufficient for salvation, the gospel is sufficient for sanctification. Used by the Spirit, it continues to work in the hearts of believers, drawing them nearer to God and transforming them into His image. The character of the Christian life is one that is always growing, one that is always transforming, and one that is always increasing. Notice that for the Philippians, Paul prays for their love to be greater than it already is. For the Thessalonians, they are praised both for their increasing love and their enlarging faith in 2 Thessalonians. John remarks on the expanding obedience as a mark of the gospel in his first epistle. And even the psalmist exemplifies this effect by his increasing desire for God's law in Psalm 119. Because the gospel is never stagnant, God is pleased when we are not stagnant also. In this particular instance, the prayer to please God is 
not evidenced by that greater love, by that expanding faith or expanding obedience or increasing desire for God's word. Our text here says the prayer is to please God by increasing in our knowledge of God. So important is this concept that Peter not only exhorts his readers to grow in this way, but it's how he ends his second epistle. And he says it in a very straightforward way. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Marking the magnitude of knowing God, Peter could have closed his letter in any way, with anything. But this is the final point that he wants to leave his readers with. It's the final thought that he wants them to ponder and to meditate upon and to dwell upon. He wants them to remember this exhortation to grow in the knowledge of God. It is our knowledge of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit that mark the Christian life. Because everything in the Christian life flows out of our knowledge of God. If we do not know God, we cannot know what it means to be a Christian say that if we do not know Christ, we don't know what it means to be a Christian. A Christian, by definition, literally means little Christ. How can we call ourselves a Christian if we don't know Christ? This knowledge here, though, is not indicative of head knowledge alone. Some of you may remember the discussion last week and how the prayer begins in verse 9. and He prays that the Colossians are controlled by the knowledge of God's will. The rare word for knowledge used there is the same word used here. It's epinosis. This is different than the typical word gnosis, which refers to a general knowledge. Instead, this is a more intense word. It's not referring to just knowing about God, but this knowledge comes from participation. To pray for their knowledge of God is to pray that they have a relationship with God. The image derived from this text follows from that phrase bearing fruit, conveying a similar idea of a tree or a vine that not only yields a harvest, yields fruit, but afterwards it continues to grow, eventually reproducing fruit again. Homer Kent indicates this picture of the Christian life is an intentional one used here. He says that it it conveyed a fruit tree, that it keeps growing. And he contrasts that with a crop, which such as grain, which will eventually die. It gives its fruit, it dies, it needs to be replanted. But a tree keeps on thriving. It's the same picture we get from Psalm chapter 1. That the person who loves God's word is like a tree planted by a stream. The idea is increasing in the knowledge of God means to increase in maturity in God. Thus the significance of this verse is that by knowing God, one will be more like God, that his or her character will reflect God. For example, our knowledge of God's grace increases when we have participated in it, which we do by receiving God's grace. And when we have done that, we are able to better extend grace to others, because we understand what grace is by participating in it. On the opposite side, if we are unwilling to extend grace to others, we have shown that we probably don't know God 
or at least don't know God's grace because we've never truly experienced or participated in his grace ourselves. We can say this about compassion, kindness, love, mercy, patience, goodness, and so on. There is a reason that twice now Paul has linked knowledge and bearing fruit. Because we can't have one without the other. To bear the fruit of gentleness, one must experience gentleness and must know gentleness by experience. Once again, if we're not cautious... We run that dangerous line of a salvation by works. So I want to point you to something important here. I can say this because it's not our work. That phrase, increasing in the knowledge of God, is a present passive participle. What does that mean? It means that this is God's work. If something is passive, then it means the action is being done to the object, not by the object. So rather than causing their own growth, their growth is being caused by something. In this case, God. Paul affirms this more in 1 Corinthians 3, 5 through 7, giving us another example, saying in a a well-known text, 1 Corinthians 3, beginning verse 5, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed. As the Lord assigned to each, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God gives the growth. Paul writes this while trying to mediate division in the church, specifically the Corinthian church. And he shares this example of literally working in the field. And he climaxes on this point that God causes the growth. God is pleased when we are increasing in our knowledge of him because it means he is able to work in the life of a believer. To please God is to know God. I want you to note third, the strength of verse 11. Paul writes about it saying, May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. God is pleased when we are strengthened by him. The natural position of humanity is one of self-reliance. But God's desire is that we be reliant upon him. Or as Todd Still puts it, a life pleasing to God is a life empowered by God. This exhortation to be strengthened is not only a call for the Colossians to not live in their own strength, But it also implies that their strength is insufficient, that they need something beyond themselves. Therefore, the call that they are to be strengthened with all power. To be strengthened by all power means to lack nothing. They're not to be strengthened by a source, or they are to be strengthened by a source that is unlimited, that will give to them without reservation so that they may be filled. The source of this power is God's glorious might, it says in our text. As in, it comes directly from God. Those two words, power and might, in the English language, are essentially synonymous. We use them to mean the same thing. They are different ways to express the same thing, but perhaps one has more emphasis than the other. But in the Greek text, 
they're conveyed by two different words. The first, power in our text, comes from the Greek word dunamis. You may have heard that this is a root word for our English word dynamite, to convey that type of power. In its simplest form in scripture, it means power or ability. Often it refers to moral power. But more specifically, it conveys the potentiality to exert force in performing a function. The power to complete a particular task. With that understanding then, the first part of verse 11 may be understood as being strengthened with the ability to labor for God. That next word, might, is a Greek word kratos, meaning strength in action, or the power to rule and control. It is used 12 times. 11 of those times refer to God. As a side note, the one time it refers to anything but God, it refers to Satan in Hebrews 2.14. And it simply describes his power of death. Not power over death. It says Satan's power of death. Quite literally, speaking of God then, the might is the power of his glory. That is what Paul is referencing here. This is the same power that was displayed by God in the Exodus to the Israelites when they were leaving Egypt. While escaping Pharaoh, the nation of Israel saw God at work in tremendous ways, in miraculous ways. He parted the Red Sea and allowed the nation to cross the Red Sea. All the while, he protected the entire nation from the Egyptian army. So incredible is this testimony of God's power that it causes Moses to compose a song in Exodus 15. That's what we read this morning during our scripture reading. And in this text, Moses simply recounts the events that took place. I'm not going to read it again, but I want you to notice some of the key elements that we read through this morning. Some of the key elements that Moses proclaims about God's glorious might. Verse 1, he notes that the Lord has triumphed gloriously. In verse 6, he says, Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, shatters the enemy. Verse 7 notes that he overthrows his adversaries by the greatness of his majesty. This is the perfect display of God's power through glory. While we understand these two words then, power and might, and place them together, we read this text then this way. Being strengthened with the ability to do the Lord's work according to God's strength in glory. God is pleased when we do his work, which we have the strength to do only when the strength comes from the power of his glory and his majesty. One small attribute you should notice about this text. Strength is never given based on the person's need. It's given based on God's ability to give. Those who are strengthened by him are strengthened merely because God can strengthen them, not because they need it. Notice further God's relationship with Judah in Isaiah 40, 28 through 29. The prophet declares, have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Verse 29, he gives power to the faint. 
And to him who has no might, he increases strength. God willingly shares this glorious power in order to enable those who are following him, in this case, Israel, as we talked about earlier, so that they may do his will. The infusion of power from God has an unexpected outcome. Verse 11 ends, praying that the Colossians are strengthened. It says, so that you may have great endurance and patience with joy. Power here is not supplied for victory. Rather, it is supplied for endurance and patience. Richard Trench notes that there is a primarily one distinction between these two words. Endurance is used principally to describe like a steadfastness in the midst of circumstances, while patience refers to steadfastness with people. Together, patience and endurance in this context capture the entirety of our existence. Noting that we are to, this power generates patience in circumstances and patience with people. And finally, we must note the small phrase, with joy. Or as some translations say, joyfully, at the end of verse 11. There is debate about whether this word goes with the endurance and patience that we just read, or if it goes with giving thanks, of verse 12. Most commentators are pretty evenly split, and in reality, it really doesn't matter which one it goes with. James tells believers that when they encounter trials, that they are to do so with joy. In a same manner, Paul tells the Thessalonians to both rejoice always and give thanks always. Personally, I tend to agree with John MacArthur that it makes more sense that this phrase, with joy, should go with verse 11, based on the principle that the idea of giving thanks joyfully, or the idea of joyful, is already included in giving thanks. If we're giving thanks, we probably already have joy. And yet, if we look at verse 11, it's not natural for us to be joyful when we're having to endure and when we're having to be patient. And so it makes sense to me that he's trying to remind the readers that as he prays for them, he wants them to be joyful in the midst of trials. So when we pull all of this together, we recognize that Paul's prayer for them to be strengthened is a prayer that the Colossians, the Colossian believers, be enabled by God's power to encounter all circumstances and people in their lives with great joy. God is pleased when we are strengthened by him because it means we're relying upon him so that we may be equipped to work for him. For some, to please God is debilitating. As Christians who wrestle with the flesh, the idea that any of us could please God is an impossibility. To be found so wanting, lacking so much on our own in order to please God, the weight of this prayer is difficult because we know it's a call we'll never fulfill. It becomes discouraging, disheartening, and even depressing. For others, namely unbelievers, the prayer to please God is just distasteful. The idea that human existence is bound by the notion of pleasing someone other than self is not merely disconcerting. To most, it's downright aggravating because they want control in their own lives. 
They ask, what right does God have to make such demands on a person's life? And it confronts one's personal autonomy. But notice how either of those arguments is alleviated by Paul's prayer here. In the midst of prayer, Paul reveals that God is pleased when we bear fruit. God is pleased when we grow in our knowledge of him. And God is pleased when we are strengthened or empowered by him. If Paul let his prayer stand only at the words, walk worthy and live a life pleasing to God, indeed, that would be discouraging. It may even be sufficient cause for aggravation because of the futility of such a demand. Notice, though, that the central work in every attribute of pleasing God is not based on our labor, but on God's labor through us. He never leaves us stranded to please him by our own effort. But each step, he has provided himself. He is the source of fruit. He is the revealer of knowledge. And he is the empowerer of strength. By this verse, as we learn that pleasing God is never the consequence of our ability, but the culmination of God's ability. Let's pray. Father God, we are indeed grateful for who you are. Grateful for your work, Lord. Grateful because we know that we could never satisfy this model of perfection given to us by Christ. Father, we could never please you under our own strength because we are indeed just sinful human beings with fallen flesh wrestling every day. And yet, Lord, you never leave us abandoned. Not only did you give us a savior to provide salvation, but you've provided yourself and your spirit for the sanctification. That in pleasing you, we may rely upon you for that. That it's not by our own efforts, it's not by our own deeds, but rather you, Lord, are the cause of those as we abide in you and your son, Jesus Christ. Father, we're so grateful in this time that we can look to you And look to your ability, that we don't have to rest in our own ability. And Father, may we do just that. May our labors be honoring and pleasing to you, not because they're our labors, but because they're your labors through us. We give you praise and honor and glory today. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen.